The Cal Halbert Podcast. Hello, everybody. Thank you for downloading and listening to this week's episode of the Cal Halbert Podcast. My guest this week is my old buddy, old pal, Ewan Thomas, MBE, Olympian, Ewan Thomas, Olympian, Ewan. I didn't mean that. Olympian, Ewan Thomas, MBE. Uh, yeah, Olympic silver medalist, world's champion. Oh, UK record holder. Is there anything he can't do? Uh, well, I imagine there's loads of things, but he's a very talented man. And my good old buddy, old pal. Uh, so we uh, I, we had loads of chinwags, chinwags and chatting. And um, But the problem was is I get carried away with chatting a load of rubbish beforehand. Don't click re- record. Then we go into the recording podcast. And then we get a bit of deja vu when we're talking about things. So uh, I hope you enjoy this episode. This is my friend, Ewan Thomas, MBE. Here we go. Oh, I'll practice this. Ewan, on your marks, get set. Go! The Cal Halbert Podcast. Well, I'm very pleased to say that on the show today, the Cal Halbert Podcast, I've got the wonderful, the fantastic, my very good friend, Mr. Ewan Thomas, MBE. I've never I've never called you your full title, Ewan. No, I quite like that. Yeah, MBE. I, I went through years of never using it, thinking that you can't. And now I'm getting older, I kind of look back and think, yeah, I'll take it. You know, I'll, I'll take a couple of letters with three little letters after their name. But yeah, it's all right. And, and also, and I mean this with respect, when I got my MBA, or when I was a lad, but no, it was it was very it was quite rare. I think the year I got mine in sport, I think it was just me and Denise Lewis. And I'm not saying they give them away willy nilly nowadays at all. Please, please <laughs> listeners, realize I'm not saying that. But it was it, it it was a real big deal as well because I remember Roger Black texted me and he went MBA. Oh, I didn't get mine until I retired. You've only been running a year. So, you know, I, I think it was because I had su- such a good season in 98. It was such a big impact. It was one of those ones, actually. And this is a true story. When the, when I got my MBE, I ripped up the letter. I thought it was a joke. I thought it was my mates winding me up. So you get like an official letter saying, you know, the, you've been recognized in the Queen's birthdays honors list, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, yeah, whatever. And I literally, honestly ignored it. And then the second letter came and it was like, You've ignored our letter dated blah, blah, blah. Do you wish to accept this honor? So then I went, oh my gosh, I phoned my mum. I said, do you think it's real? She goes, yeah. And um, I remember I took, um, so I took my mum, my dad, and my late grandmother. My, my dad's mum was a little bit like Mrs. Bouquet. So she came from a very poor background, the council estate, North London, but she thought she was the queen, literally. Yeah. And we went to get my MBE and she came along and, you know, to Buckingham Palace and la cha cha. And then afterwards, my dad took us to the, to the RAF club for lunch and my grandma sort of sat there rocking and my dad said do you need a toilet she goes I've been bursting all morning and he's like why didn't you go at Buckingham Palace yeah, yeah. and she said oh I, I couldn't have gone there the toilets might not be very clean and she literally thought the toilets at Buckingham Palace might not be up to her standard Mrs. Bouquet so yeah so she, was, she, was, she was a funny one my gran I tell you yeah bless her but yes MBA thank you very much I'll have yeah, it yeah yeah you and Thomas MBA I when you were at the Buckingham Palace, did you nick anything? I mean, because I, I would have, No. I yeah, I think, didn't one of the Spice Girls famously take an ashtray or some, or some toilet roll? I, yeah, no, I, I didn't. But I did go to the toilet several, I've, I've been, this sounds very blase now, but I've been lucky enough to go to Buckingham Palace a number of times. Yeah. And I think the first time I was very starry-eyed. You know, I was every time, you did, wow, it's something very special and, and it's an honour. But I can't remember. I think, yeah, I think I took toilet roll the first the first time I went. I think I did take some bog roll. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we first met uh, a fair few years ago. Now, when we were both working at a radio station in London. Yeah. Uh, and so, how did that come about for you? Because obviously, 
It was called Love Sport Radio, so it was all to do with sport. I mean, I don't know how I got there, but I completely understand how you got there because you were, well, first of all, Atlanta 96 silver medalist. Yep. Don't tell me that was don't tell me that was the year you were born, Carl, because I'm going to feel really old now. Were you born in 96? I bet you were. No, 93. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. So that's not too bad. 93. So you, oh, you were, oh, you were three. Okay, yeah, yeah. To be fair, <laughs> I was I, I was young at, at Atlanta. It was my first year as a proper full-time athlete, and it was a bit of a surprise I got there, let alone coming away with a silver medal. So for me, it was like, wow. And, and, and I think... 94, so the year after you were born, was the year that I went, hang on a minute, maybe I could be quite good at this running thing. Because I was at uni. My, it's a bit of a weird one, my love story, and it sounds very, very, almost no way. But literally, I did school sports day at a new school because I was trying to show off. I did five events on, on sports day. Nice. I won all five events, broke five school records. And luckily for me, the, the PE teacher literally clicked me around the head. So I've never seen talent like it. What are you doing, boy? Took <laughs> Took me to the county championships. And then three weeks later, I'm on a plane going to Korea, to Seoul, to the World Junior Championships. I didn't belong to any athletics club. I was running in borrowed running spikes. I'd never done a day's training or I didn't have a coach. And everyone was going, who is this kid? And I'm like, what am I doing here? And literally, it, it happened so quickly. And I thought, yeah, I've got to a certain level. It must be raw talent, but I'm never going to make it. The likes of Roger Black, David Grinley, they're so much better than me. Yeah. But then when I was at uni... I got selected for the 94 Commonwealth Games and I honestly was only training one evening a week and literally mm-hmm. I was a typical student out drinking most nights. Of course, yeah. And I ended, up, I ended up getting a Welsh record just missing out on the final. My mum and dad were like, oh, we're so proud of you. It must be so hard juggling all your studying and that training. And I was like, hang on a minute. And a light bulb moment went off and I thought, if I can get to this level of very little training, I need, I need to really turn my life around. And yeah. when I finished uni, I was so lucky my parents were able to financially help me. But my dad said, listen, you've been going down to Southampton once a week. You've obviously got to a certain level. What do you want to do when you finish your degree? And I remember thinking, I don't want to get a proper job. So I just said, oh, could, could, I, could I maybe give this athletics lark a try? And this was before lottery funding. So my dad said, look, I'll pay, I'll pay your rent for eight months. You move to Southampton, get yourself a part-time job. So I moved to Southampton on the Friday, walked into next, the clothing shop on a Saturday morning. So you've got any jobs? And they're like, can you start today? And I was like, oh. All right, then. I was only sort of asking to keep my dad happy. Yeah. So that's what I did. I, I moved to Southampton. I lived in a little bed sit. I, I, I worked during the days and I trained in the evenings really hard all through the winter of 95, 96. And then ended up, you know, going to the Olympics and thinking, wow. And then signed a, a contract with a shoe company. And I suppose, you know, quit, quit the job at next and, and ne- never, if you want, went back to a proper job. And I just, yeah. I'm so lucky that my PE teacher realized I had something. And then my dad pushed me in the right direction and, and, and was able to say to me, come on, don't look back with regrets. Just give it one winter's training and let's see if you could be good. And it kind of happened from there. And, you know, and I think there's so many people in the world like me, but aren't lucky enough to realize yeah. their talent, whether it's you with, with your voices or your comedy or it's someone who works with numbers or paintings or great working with children. I think every, all of us, I think I've got a talent, but only a certain amount of us are lucky enough to realize what that is. Yeah. And for me, it was just a combination of, 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 of luck, right time, right place, working really hard. I mean, let's not forget that I did work hard, but yeah, you know, I, I, I sit here now and I think I have a lot of regrets in my life and I, and, and I have a lot of injuries. So I really, I had sort of three good years and then lots and lots of injuries, but I still have those three good years. And if I hadn't had those, then, you know, I, I don't know what I would have done for a living, but, you know, I'm very grateful that I, I, I made a living from something I truly love doing. 
that, that's just amazing, isn't it? Because I mean, I was my sporting accolades when I was a kid. I, I was pretty decent at tennis. That was about it. But I also, you know, when my parents were were part partly like you as well in that they were going, yes, you're going to give tennis a go. Keep throwing money that they they didn't have a lot of money. Do you know what I mean? But they kept buying me new rackets and stuff to to help me going and stuff. But ultimately, there is a point in any sporting uh, activity or whatever it is you do, there is a point where you need to go, I'm not good enough to do this anymore. Do you know what I mean? And I was at that point where I wasn't good enough to make a living out of being a tennis player. And I just, I knew that. So it was just, and and then I realized that I like doing comedy and I went and did that instead where I could, I could yeah. drink seven nights a week rather than, <laughs> <laughs> rather than, uh, rather than not. But Having you said that yeah, you're going you moved down to Southampton and stuff, was it not really isolating and lonely doing that? Yeah, I mean what what had helped me is I was coming down one night a week with a student when I was at university, a guy called Dan Donovan, and we used to borrow his mum's battered old Peugeot two oh five, drive down the M three, train on a Thursday, and I, I found myself within a month or so beating the good athletes. You know, bearing in mind, my coach used to coach the likes of Chris Akabusi, wow. you know, Todd Bennett, Roger Black. You know, he was a very, very tough, good 400-meter coach. And he saw in me quite quickly that I had something. And then I thought, do you know what? If I'm doing this once a week and I'm, I'm pottering around the rest of the week, maybe I really should do it. And I moved to Southampton. But because I've been coming down one night a week, I knew some of the training group. But it was lonely. I won't lie. I mean, I didn't live in Grandeur. I lived in a really pretty bad area. And I lived in a little bed sit where my bed pulled out the wall and you know, I'm not being ungrateful because my dad paid my rent, but he wasn't going to pay my rent somewhere nice. He was going, that'll do. You know, and, and, it, and it did do. And I think it kept me grounded as well. And, you know, a lot of people, even later on in my career, a lot of people would go and spend months upon months warm weather training. I didn't really did. I, I did. I used to go to South Africa, but only for the maximum of six weeks. Yeah. Um, and I used to like training in the cold, wet, damp, snow, rain of, of Britain because I felt it toughened me up. And I also felt when I lined up for a race, I looked across at the Americans and thought, and I thought, you haven't sacrificed as much as me. You haven't trained in a new forest on a, on a Wednesday in the pouring rain. You're in California in your little shorts. And I, can't, I think it kind of toughened me up. And in fact, the brilliant triple jumper, Jonathan Edwards, who's from your part of the world, he, he used to tell me that as well. He used to purposely stay in Britain because he knew it, it would toughen him up, basically. And yeah. I, I read somewhere that um, Daley Thompson used to train on Christmas Day. So I started doing that as well. And wow. Not physically in terms of, I wouldn't look around and think, oh, I've trained one extra day and everyone else having a day off, I'm going to be faster than you. But I would look around and think, I've sacrificed more than you. And I remember one Christmas, I had to break in to the local track in my parents' village. And I had to literally shovel the snow off lane one where I wanted to train. And I remember there, sat there freezing on my own, thinking, what am I doing this for? And I thought, you're doing it because no one else is doing it. Yeah. And, and, and it really did help me. So in the call room, before a major championship, when you're all there, your coach is gone, you've got no music on, you're just there with your thoughts and your seven competitors. I'd look around the room and I'd think, there's no way you you you, you didn't train on Christmas Day. Yeah. I obviously want it more than you. And it's all about those tiny little margins, those little percentage gains. And, and that's why I did it. So do you not talk to anybody in that room? Is it just a case of... Because I think I try and wind people up and... Catch yeah, them off guard. Well, do you know what I mean? <laughs> well it, it, it's interesting, and, and, I, I, and I've never told this story, but basically, in athletics, in a nutshell, you have a warm up track, and you'll turn up two hours before your race, and you, you can listen to your music, you're chatting to your coach, you're doing your warming up. You'll see your rivals for the first time, and you might want to eyeball them, or you might want to look quite good. Or Typically, I'd stand tall, so yeah. I'd try and look bigger than I am, you know, 
don't don't we all? But um, you know, I'd, I'd stand around and, and I'd, I'd puff the chest out and I'd try. Well, and you're look a giant anyway, you and. No, I was pretty big. Yeah, not yeah. I used to race Butch Reynolds, and he was about six foot eight or something. So you know, some some of them were big lads. But basically, you'd go to the initial call room where they check your numbers, and that's probably forty five minutes to an hour before you race. And then very soon after that, you're taken away from the warm up track. Some some athletic stadiums on a little coach to the, to the final call room. But I remember the World Championships '97. It was a really weird situation where there was underground tunnels from the warm up track to the main stadium. And I remember walking and there was the, the eight of us and myself and Michael Johnson somehow, because you have like officials who walk you, we somehow got ahead of everyone else. And I remember looking back and all the other finalists were about 10 or 15 meters behind. We turned a corner and we're above at the top of some stairs. And I literally for a split moment thought, push him, push him. No one will know. <laughs> and I literally thought if I took him out now and pushed him down the stairs, it's his word against mine and I'll, I'll become world champion. Because Michael Johnson was the one person who literally... He was the Usain Bolt of my generation. He yeah. was literally unbeatable. But um, the call room was a, was a place where I did, I did try and get in people's heads. So you'd be sat around and before they call you to get into your blocks and stuff into the, into the stadium. You did have probably 10, 15 minutes where some people would like to be relaxed. So the likes of Roger Black would sit in the corner, be very focused. I'd never try and get into his head. But there's other athletes who I would stand above. And I, I'm, this is horrible. I won't say names, but I have actually sworn into someone's face and i've said the words i'm gonna mesh i'm gonna mess you up yeah you know because <laughs> i knew i could get into his head and by him seeing me being aggressive and very confident i knew it would chip away at his confidence and that's mm -hmm. a really bad thing to do and it's, it's not sport it's not very sportsmanlike, but you know what to do and i would never do that to michael johnson i'd never even look at him because you know leave him to it but there were athletes who you knew if you caught eye contact and I kept staring at them. They'd look away first. And I knew in my head, yep, yeah, got him. And so yeah. even before you've heard on your marks, they're scared of me. Yeah. And, it, and, it's a, and, and, and you wouldn't see it so much in the 100 meters. Sorry, in the 400. But in the 100, you'd even see it in championships where on the lineup, they're in their blocks. People will be looking. And I think Dennis Mitchell quite famously used to go up the line and say, like, talk to people about their mothers and stuff. Like, <laughs> really bad. To try and put people off and, and make them think, what did you say? And then course in 100 meters if you're not on it when the gun goes you've lost yeah. the race so there are mind games i wouldn't i don't know if it's as bad as cricket or other sports but there certainly are mind games you can use and the weirdest thing is though and you know me i'm honestly the nicest guy but when i got into that athletics track i had a switch you know and, and i would become very focused and i would become nasty or yeah, do whatever i needed go on, to do don't they blinkers go on yeah yeah, I mean, as I said, some people like Roger, Roger Black would listen like on the warm-up track. I'd, I'd often say, what are you listening to? You know, and there's me listening to Firestarter and music that's going to get me really pumped up. He'd be listening to like folk music or something or country and, you know, he'd be literally <laughs> under a tree with his guitar relaxing because that's how he found his happy place. Yeah. We're all different, aren't we? We're all of different. Of course, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, in 96, you got the silver medal and you broke the UK record, which still stands today. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure. And then in 1997, again, you got silver. But um, the USA, the the team at the USA, they were uh, they were cheating, were they not? Yeah, this is a weird one. So basically, the '96 we just lost out to become Olympic champions to USA, and everyone expected that. So you know, I came away. As I said, I was living in a little bed set. I came away with an Olympic silver medal. My life was about to change. It was amazing. Did you, did you have the to follow... pay yourself to get over to Atlanta? Or oh no, 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 you, no, 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 no. Oh no! You still, you, yeah, yeah. You, at the Olympics, everything's paid for. No, it, oh, it, it's amateur, but yeah, yeah. 
it's not like some sports like yours, tennis, whereby I believe the athletes cover their own flights and the hotels yeah, and yeah. all that. And no, no, everything's taken care of. You know, in, in athletics, you don't have to worry about any of that. But yeah, came back from Atlanta, life changed. The following year, in the 400, I'd really messed up the final. That was the one where I was walking to the warm-up track. And, you know, Johnson was beatable that year. I was ranked number two in the world and I should have come second. Yeah. But I went off way too quick and I came sixth. But in the relay, we came second again. But we were, this time around, we were disappointed because we knew we could have beaten the Americans. Yes. Fast forward 13 years, two of the Americans come out and say, they failed drugs test at this point. And they said, look, we'll be honest. We were cheating in 97 as well. So we got, we got, but it's a really sore subject, Cal. And I, I actually don't like talking about it because we didn't get the moment in the spotlight. I, in essence, I was a world champion, but I hadn't had 13 years of the sponsorship money of being a world champion. But what makes it even worse is every, at every major championship, the medal will represent that country. So for example, Athens, it was like on the medal, it was beautiful Greek mythology carved onto it and all this. And I thought, oh, great, we're going to, Get, give the silver back and the Americans will hand over their goals and we get given that. Quite the opposite. All that happened for me, we didn't even have a, a, a ceremony. Mm. Someone from British Athletics met me in a car park in Birmingham and they gave me the medal and it wasn't even the medal. It was like one of those toy ones. So it was like a gold, just a plain gold medal with a stamp on it saying IWF world champion. And I was like, I chucked it under a bed and I've never looked at it since. So it wasn't that exact replica. So not only had we been cheated out of our moment in the spotlight, but we haven't even got the right medal. And it is quite disappointing. I, I kind of I kind of respect the two athletes who came forward and admitted they were cheating as far back as 97. But obviously, I hate them for what they did. But the, the, the tragic story of all of that, sport is only sport. But Antonio Pettigrew, one of the athletes, took his life the year after that was announced. So that, it's just so sad that someone, first of all, cheated in my beloved sport but secondly and much more much sadder the fact that he, he felt the guilt and he, and he took his own life so a horrendous situation but yeah 13 years on I was crowned a world champion but it, it, it was a hollow victory really yeah it, uh, that must be really difficult to to go through it in that because I think that's one of the most difficult things about it is that it's not just the fact that you, yes you were the winners that that year you were the world champions that year but as you say it's that moment of of glory that pride that you go yes we've worked so hard and it, it kind of it, it cheating in any sport just belittles the the work because you just say oh hang on so they're just taking stuff when i'm out bloody shoveling snow on christmas day what, what's the point in this yeah, it, yeah it's yeah. it must be infuriating what hurt me more with all of that, and I, I say this with massive respect, rest his soul, but someone like Antonio Pettigrew had a, had, had a really long career. The longevity, he was around for about 15 years. Yeah. And now we know he was cheating. And there was me. I had two good years and one half season, and then my body broke. And I'm sure there's things I could have taken to get me back quicker from injuries. Of course, injuries. Yeah. course there is. But I would never have done it. I, I didn't even used to take multivitamins. I was so paranoid something could be in it, you know? Yeah. And it, it, just, it just pains me that, I can honestly say nothing gave me greater pride than putting on that British Fest or the Welsh Fest at the Commonwealth Games and trying to represent my country to my best ability. And, and I miss it every day. I used to love walking back through Heathrow Security and the, and the security guards going, I watched you last night. Great race, lad. Great race. You know, and I just thought, yeah. And, and I used to love that. So it really pains me that I only had two or three good years. And the nature of the 400 meters is it's so tough to train for. Your body will break. And there, mm. there you are, some American, the other side of the world, cheating who has 10 or 15 years at the top and you just think it's just not fair not fair 
Yeah, it isn't. It isn't at all. So, at what point did you transfer from being an athlete to? Because we now know you as a presenter. You you work on the likes of the One Show. Uh, you're on BT Sport, hosted MotoGP. Uh, you've been on all sorts of different TV shows as well. So, at what point did you transfer over? Yeah, it was weird, really. I think it was during. I was still an athlete, but it was quite clear and apparent. I, I was getting lots of injuries, and I was never going to probably get back to the level I, I was at. And all throughout my career. I was one of those who really enjoyed the interview. Yeah. So, you know, the live interview at the side of the track where some people might shy away a little bit and keep on to keep on point, oh, I want to thank the National Lottery and my mother and father. Thank you. <laughs> you know, you know, they're just like robots. I I actually loved it. So there was a sort of opportunity where I'd go I'd go to Jamie Bolts, listen, I'm gonna slip in the word banana, what's Subaka's face? You know, whatever. And I just I just felt really relaxed on tel- on television. I just loved it. And it just got to the stage where I was getting injuries and I started, I, thought, I can't remember, I just started doing a few bits and pieces. And I think at the time CBBC asked me to do a couple of little pieces for camera and I kind of thought, hey, this is all right, I quite like this. Yeah. And then I kind, of, I kind of fell into it, I think. And, um, you know, once again, though, I, I did work quite hard at that. You know, it's not something that it's like athletics. You can, you know, maybe get someone open the door for you, but you're going to have to like shove it open and work hard because there's yeah, lots yeah. of people who want to do that. So, yeah, but... I just quite enjoy it, like you. I just feel I, I naturally can talk, and I quite like talking. I, I like people, and yeah, it's something I love doing, really. Because I mean, when you're on the one show, it's quite. <laughs> I love the one show because they they <laughs> they jump from all sorts of stuff. You go right. Well, that was uh, that that was the the history of dust. Now we're going to go to 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 Giles Bramroth and how sandwiches are made. You know, yeah. <laughs> you go, wow, how, how have they ta- made this into a tangent? It's such a crazy show. So what, do you ever get told what you're going to be doing? And can you go, uh, I'm not, I'm not doing that. Nah. <laughs> normally, normally, because a lot of it's almost like breaking stories. So it might be last minute. They might say, right, are you free tomorrow? Yeah, why? When you just get the flight to Liverpool, it leaves in an hour. You're going to go and bake bread in a, in an old people's home or something like that. I'll tell you one of the funniest ones I did. There's been some, I've been really lucky. I've done some amazing things. But one of the funny ones I did, is, I mentioned Liverpool. There was one there. I was said, it was like Champions League semi-final or something. I said, you've got to go and get a signed birthday card by the Liverpool team. They know you're coming. Um, uh, this lady, Betty, she's 104 tomorrow. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. So yeah. what's happening? You're going, to, you're going to on camera give her the birthday card. And even better than that, you're going with Ian Rush. And I was going, legend. So anyway, yeah, so I turned up to Liverpool you know, all, all the likes of Gerard Lalanne and all the players were there and they were signing this birthday card. And I remember the next day on camera, I had to go to this old people's home and um, and, and give this card to, to Betty. And um, I was with Ian Rush. And basically, we, we, we sat on the bed and I said, hi, I'm from the one show. We know you're a massive Liverpool fan. You know, I've got you this card signed. And, ob- and obviously, I've got with me a very special guest. And she read the card and she saw Ian Rush's signature. She went, oh... I wish Ian Rush, I'd love to have met Ian Rush. And I went, no, no, no. And she didn't recognise him without the moustache or whatever. And like, she couldn't believe that Ian Rush was with me. She goes, that's not, she wouldn't believe it. That's not Ian Rush. And I said, no, 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 no. So yeah, you know, I've done some wonderful things, honestly. There's been so many to think of. I mean, I, I remember my first one was kind of sport related. Yeah. And then from there, they thought, oh, we can obviously do this. And over the sort of last eight years, I've, I've, done, I've done loads of different things. I've been abroad with it. You know, I've done some some weird and wacky things. And I think that is the beauty of the one show is you never know what you're doing next. Like literally, I, 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 yeah. I, I, you know, it's funny, isn't it? The one show is almost like um, an adult version of Blue Peter, isn't it? That, that's pretty much what yeah. it is. And it, I, I love it. I, I think it's proper good because you just, you sit there and you go, 
Hang on, how have they got Robert De Niro sat next to Fozzie Bear? What's going on here? How have they managed to do that? <laughs> yeah, it's it's mad. It's it's weird as well because like because I do do such varied stuff now. Um, I remember a few years back, I did MasterChef and I, I, I did work much better than I ever expected. I was runner up and I, and I was still sort of training and I went to a track and this kid went, mummy, mummy, look, there's that chef off TV. And she was like, no, 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 he's an athlete. What do you mean an athlete? And like, you've got to realise like for people who were born after like late 90s or whatever, they won't know me as an athlete and they might yeah. go, I've had grannies come up to me, you know, on the street and go, oh, love watching you on the one show. <laughs> and they, and they, they don't know I was actually an athlete. And this yeah. is just something I do because, you know, on the side sort of thing. But, yeah, it, it's, it's funny how different people perceive you and, you know, recognize you for maybe different things. But, yeah, th- things obviously change. I'm not an athlete anymore. And that, I think that's kind of the weirdest thing for me. I've got to remember, I'm not 24 years old anymore. I'd love to think I was, but. It's a it's a lifetime. Sometimes it feels like yesterday that I was an athlete, yeah. and I think if I had to run for a bus or something, I'd easily make it. I'm quicker than everyone, <laughs> but I'm not. I tear my hamstring after ten meters. But you know, and, and other other days, other days I wake up and I think that was that was a lifetime ago that I used to yeah. run down the track. You know, are you looking forward to your, your son's sports days where the dad's race comes in? Are you looking forward to that though? Because I would be. I mean, think I, I'd be, yeah. what, that's where I would be walking up and down the line going, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna mess you up, and I'm gonna. <laughs> Thing is, though, Cal. Thing is, Cal. I'm 47 now, and that's my worry. I've, I've, that's oh, that's my dog barking in the background. Sorry about that. That's my worry now. I was only speaking about this the other day. So by the time I go to Teddy's Sports Day in a couple of years' time or something, I'm going to be knocking on the door of 50, and there's going to be some young 18 year old or 20 year old dad going, "I've been told you are. You're off Master Chef." <laughs> no, 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 but you know some. Someone will be limber, but I will take it. I'm going to dust off my running spikes. I might even bring out an old GB kit and just like, you know, <laughs> take your medals as well. Take yeah. your- <laughs> but, can, but can you imagine if I don't win the daddy race? If I don't win the daddy race, then car, especially in my village, people talk, you know, like, oh, yeah, we only came third. You know, it's going to be horrendous. <laughs> yeah, you'd be going home, right? Teddy needs to move schools. We can't, we yeah, can't yeah. be doing this. We're leaving. <laughs> Oh, oh no! I do, I do look, I do look forward to it, but I, I will be training for it. Let me tell you, I will be training for that that sports day definitely. Oh, absolutely! I mean, you were you were on the, this morning among other shows talking about uh, Teddy's illness, and you yeah. Well, I just try and raise awareness, really. So Teddy was born with something called strep B, and we'd never heard of it, and and it's a really weird one. And to this day, I, I get kind of very proud of our NHS, but I also question it, thinking, why don't midwives warn people about this? So one in four women naturally carry this bacteria inside them, and it's just a natural thing they have. And if you have got strep B in your system and you pass it on to your child when you give birth, even after hospital treatment, one in 10 babies will still die or be left severely brain damaged or typically with cerebral palsy. So we went through absolute hell where Teddy was born, great, four hours later, he couldn't breathe. So he, we, he was rushed into to intensive care and he spent 10 days fighting for his life. And Touchwood, luckily, has come through relatively unscathed. You know, we're, we're really lucky. But I try my hardest to try and raise awareness because it's only 30 quid for a test to go private to see if you have got strep B. And if you have, it's a simple antibiotics. When you give birth, baby's going to be fine. Yeah. But it's one of those things where I feel for the NHS because it's purely a cost thing why they don't test every single mother. And also the kind of grey area is you may be a carrier of strep B, but it might not be active when you give birth. So there's no guarantee you'll definitely pass it on. But most European countries do test for it. But I wonder how much it must have cost to keep Teddy alive in intensive care for 10 days versus the 30 quid test. So, yeah, yeah 
Group B Strep Support is a charity and I, and I try and raise awareness for them. And, you know, I, I was gobsmacked when I went on this morning the first time with Teddy and, and talked about how sick he was. The amount of messages I got from people going, oh my God, I've never heard of it. I'm seven months pregnant. I'm going to get tested. Or, you know, on the flip side, very sad people got in touch saying, yeah, my daughter was born 14 years ago. She died because of this. I just can't believe we're still talking about the fact no one knows what it is. So it's a, it's a really common thing, mm. but people don't know about it. But, um, you know, the worst thing for us really was when he was born, he got through the worst of it, which was great. And then we were saying, will there be side effects? And they kept saying, we won't know. And I said, how long for? They said, at least one year. And I said, so we, we lived with the sort of fear. And it's cool if it had happened, it had happened. But we lived with the sort of the, the uncertainty that he might have cerebral palsy. So we wouldn't know until he's a year old. But luckily, he's good. But I will say, you know, even now, he, he gets quite poorly quite often. So his immune system is so weak, whereas another cold, might, a kid might get a cold or a chest infection from nursery. You pick up bugs. That'll be gone in a week. Teddy's poorly for like two or three months. So, you know, he, he still, I think he'll grow out of it, but he still has, he still has a few little issues. But he's, he's wonderful. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. It's like, uh, yeah, I just, my one regret really now I've got Teddy is I wish I'd done it earlier because yeah. as an athlete, I've had to live a very selfish lifestyle, you know, and I, and I don't mind admitting it. I've been a horrible person at times. It's always been me, me, me. If I've got to drop everything and go traveling tomorrow to race and I'm not back for three weeks, I don't care, I'm gone. Yeah. You know, but now that I've become a father, it's like, None of this was about me. It's yeah. about what I've learned in my life and what tools I've gathered and, and lessons I can pass on to him. And, you know, he teaches me so much all the time as well. Yeah. But it, it, it's amazing. He's at, he's at terrible twos and, and, and they are terrible. Like I remember, I remember, God, I remember years gone past. I'd see like a kid having a tantrum in Tesco's and I'd look at the parents and almost shake my head saying, control your spoilt little kid. And you don't realize till you've got a kid that this is a real thing. T tantrums is because. They can't, from what I read up, they're learning so much and they understand. Like now, for example, if he's here, he could, he, he wants to say, Daddy, you're talking too loud. I'm trying to watch, you know, Peppa Pig and you keep the noise down, but he can't say it yet. Yeah. So they get frustrated. So they're like, yeah. And, it, and, it, and it literally, yeah, he does his tantrums. But the funniest I heard was from my mate Steve, my mate Fireman Steve. He's got a couple of kids and one of the guys on his watch came to work the other day and he was like this. He hadn't slept and he was like, oh, you won't believe what happened. And, I, and, and my mate Steve, what happened? Same thing happened. He was in the supermarket and his kid was throwing a tantrum and apparently he left him. He thought, do that. And then he said, no, I'm not having it. Tried to pick him up. And the kid was three, so he understood. And when the dad was trying to pick him up, the kid was shouting out, stranger, stranger, danger, stranger. <laughs> and and his, dad, his dad was like, oh, no, it's okay. I'm his dad. And his kid was going, no, stranger, who is he? <laughs> daddy, where's daddy? Like literally playing the, playing the game. Oh, but God. I, I, yeah. I fear for the day that Teddy does that because because he's funny like that. I, should, I can imagine him doing it. <laughs> Do you know, I, it's funny. I, I remember because I, I chat to you quite a lot, and we were talking. I said, "Oh, how are things, mate? How are things?" And uh, it must have been just after Teddy's first birthday, and uh, we were chatting. I said, "How are things?" He went, "Yeah, yeah, good." He goes, "But Teddy got given a drum kit." He goes, <laughs> and I've got. I did have quite a nice house. Now, because the drumsticks have been twatted off everything apart from the drums. <laughs> it's wrecked. 
honestly, this house used to be like contemporary. And if you look from, from a distance, it's still nice. But when you go closer, there's chipped walls. There's all sorts. But people do it on purpose. My mate, for his birthday, bought in this tractor thing, right? And, it, and, and all the different characters sit in the tractor. Like you press the duck down, it makes a duck noise and dog noise. And it's really, really noisy. Like he did it on purpose. And I remember I went on social media. And I was like, can anyone tell me how to turn this thing down? And here's me being Mr. Gullible. Someone said, oh, yeah, it's a combination. You go duck, duck, horse, <laughs> cow, 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 horse, duck, duck. And I'm like, all right, mate, thanks very much. I wrote it down. I was like, <laughs> and literally, obviously, I won. it took me a minute to realize they're having a joke with me. And like, literally, he's got so many noisy toys. It's like, please stop buying him stuff. But the worst thing is you mentioned the drums. I have an actual drum kit at home and like he loves it and I can't play the drums. I got a drum kit because my parents would never let me have one. So yeah. being rebellious about 10 years ago, I'm going to buy myself a drum kit and Teddy just sits on it and bashes away. But yeah, it's a noisy, it's a noisy house. The only reason you can't hear him now, he's at nursery at the moment. Otherwise, he'd be running around everywhere. <laughs> you went on Strictly Come Dancing in 2015. Tell me a bit about that. Well, it won't take long. I was on it very briefly. <laughs> no, do you, do you know what? I, I, I get sort of, a, not sad when I talk about Strictly, but it was a really tough experience for me because what people didn't realise, I was also filming a BBC documentary at the time when I got right. asked to do Strictly. So, for example, the first week of Strictly, whereas everyone had two weeks to learn the routine, I flew in from Japan the night before. Literally, I had two days to learn the first routine, and it showed. But I think what happened for me, I think the judges got win. Because well, Peter Andre, unfortunately, went on Radio 1 or something and said, oh, fair play to you and Thomas. He's only got a day and a half to learn the first routine. He's in Japan. you know. And I think he thought he was doing me a favour. Yeah. But actually, the judge, I think the judges to this day looked at it and thought, oh, he's only doing Strictly for the money. You know, he's, he's so busy. You know, whatever. And it wasn't yeah. the case. I'd already signed up to do something else. So the Strictly experience was magical, but very short-lived. But um, wow, what a production. For me, that is the biggest shiniest show there is in terms of you know you have a code name so like basically when you're you? when you're yeah when you're selected for strictly it's such a secret you have to have like medicals and you have to go for different bits and pieces and i remember my name was merlin so they do like different characters or you might do like gangster names or whatever it is but my year i was merlin i remember i got um i was in a london a hotel in london i had to get collected to do a medical and someone rang my hotel and said, oh, Mr. Merlin, Mr. Merlin, your driver's here. And I went, you've got the wrong room, right? Merlin. <laughs> no, you are Merlin. And I had to keep remembering. So I, they, they keep everything so top secret. You have all these code names. And yeah, it was weird. It was I weird. Never but knew that. I, That's like presidential. Yeah. Yeah, your name won't be your name until you are announced as it being on the show. And I was announced last. And myself and Kirsty Gallagher, we were announced on the one show. And we were the last to be announced. But we'd already done two days training for the first week opening dance. And I think I'd been papped around some other dancers and the rumours were out and they had to announce it. But yeah, it was really, it was so, honestly, literally put, you'll have a blanket over your head getting into cars and stuff. They keep it so secret. God, it's it's crazy, unreal. Yeah, and then you come back to your real world, and it's just like it, it, you can get wound up in all that. I think, and I think, unfortunately, some people do, and that's why I think, unfortunately, in this industry, some people change because they believe the hype. And you you'll do a show like Strictly where you want for nothing, you've got your own personal driver, and then you're staying in lovely hotels and all this, and you think, I'm going to be it. I'm home on Tuesday. I'm doing the washing up, or I've got to change Teddy's <laughs> nappy, or whatever it might be. And that's the reality. You know, it's, it's it's not even real, the showbiz world. It isn't, and it won't last forever. But I think, unfortunately, some people believe the hype, and that's when they change. 
Would you ever do any of the other shows? I know you've done some game shows and that you did the Million Pound Drop, Eggheads. Uh, you did Total Wipeout as well. You must have been good on Total Wipeout, though. I know. I, I, I was rubbish on Dizzy Dummies. I, I kept getting stuck on this thing. I, I didn't even make the final. I was flying up to that. To be honest, I went through a stage where I did too much TV. At the time, I thought, oh, this won't last much longer. Yeah. I'll say yes to everything. And when I look back, there's certain shows where I think, probably shouldn't have done that. Yeah, maybe shouldn't have done that. But I think, I don't know. I, I mean, I think the one I haven't done is The Jungle. And I, the only reason I think I would, I love Ant and Dead. They're amazing. But I think, Anything where you have to challenge yourself. I mean, that eating some of that stuff. I mean, all them testicles yeah. in your mouth and the, the kangaroo anus and all that stuff. Gee, man, that's going to be horrific. But um, <laughs> that's a that is a good show. That is a good show, and, that, and those guys make that. But no, I, once again, you know, I've been really lucky to have some opportunities. I say to a lot of people, look, at the end of the day, I used to just run around in a circle, uh, you know, and <laughs> and it's open. But but I did, I did. I started there and I finished there. I got my kit on. I went home. But it's opened so many doors. Yeah. Like I've met lovely people like yourself. Our paths wouldn't cross. You know, I've met some wonderful people through being an athlete and, and I'll, I'll eternally be grateful for, as I said earlier, making a living out of something I love doing. I honestly, I would have run for nothing. Getting paid, paid was a bonus. Yeah. There, there is that phrase that, that is in comedy world where they go, look, I'll come and do the gig for free, but you're paying me for the travel and the, the accommodation. That's what you're paying me really? for. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah. It's like, but I'll yeah. do the gig for free. I don't mind. Do you know? <laughs> how, how, how scary is it though? Cause I, cause I, I think it, it is me. I think I'm quite funny. And on a night out when we used to be able to go out, I would be the idiot, the clown amongst my friends telling the jokes and, you know, trying to do practical jokes. But standing up, I mean, it, what you do is tough. I mean, the comedy that? and the impressions, I think, I know you're, you're, it's almost, I suppose you're fit for what you do and it's what you do, so you're comfortable at it. But how daunting was it for you when you did your first gig? Oh, really tough, really. But then also, it, you get caught up in, like you say, you get caught up in it and you go, yeah, I am very funny. Yeah, I am. And uh, I'm on the stage. So everybody look at me. Do you know, there is yeah, a bit of yeah, that yeah. when you first start out and then, then you finally die on your ass and you realise you've died on your ass and you go, oh God, this is horrendous. And you and you yeah. wish you had a blanket over your head getting in the back of a car. Do you know? Really? <laughs> You're like, oh God, this is awful. But uh, What about what about heckles? Because when I, when I watch comedians and that and they're on stage and I just think if some... Do you have put-downs, return heckles ready in your head, or do you have yeah. to be quick? Yeah, yeah. It's a mixture. It depends what people heckle. And sometimes a lot of people have got standard heckle put-downs as well that nearly everybody uses. But, you know, a lot of the time people don't heckle because most of the time people just want to listen and have a laugh. Do you know what I mean? It's very, very yeah. rare that um, people are heckling. It's very like It's far rarer than what people think it is. But, like... It, it, it can be tough at times, but there's. It, it's funny, you know, because I'm, I'm pretty sure it was Jerry Seinfeld that said that uh, more people are scared of public speaking than they are of dying. He goes, so if you're at a funeral, more people would rather be in the box than giving the eulogy. Yeah, <laughs> I can I can believe it though. I can believe it. But what's what's kind of I think been bizarre for me. I don't mind admitting this, but at school I was very outgoing. I was the sport billy kid. The yeah. teachers left me alone. I could be an idiot in class. I'll leave him alone. He represents the school at football, rugby, whatever. Yeah. But speaking in class, I couldn't do. So if I had to stand up in English and read, I'd get totally tongue-tied. I'd get sweaty. And, and, and it's something I really feared. But yet fast forward 30 years, and I don't mind hosting you know, the world championships in front of 80,000 people. In fact, I love it. Like you said, it's me, me, me. Here I am on the mic. But I could not even talk in front. And even, even at uni, I, if I stood up to do like a, a, a presentation or a seminar, 
my legs would be shaking like mad. I, I, I couldn't talk in front of 20 people. So I, I can understand why people don't like it. I have had that where I I couldn't I hated talking in school hated it like a proper if you know when you had to stand up and do your presentations and stuff like that oh we've all been working on a slideshow for the past four days let's uh, let's present them I was the one that was trying to push to sit down at the computer and click next because I didn't want to explain yeah. it I was like and admittedly I did do drama and stuff and I and I started doing the stage stuff and I could do that and I was absolutely fine walking out on stage to do because it wasn't me it was. It was somebody. I was playing somebody else, or if I was doing stand up, I'm playing the stand up. Whereas, if it's me, like, well, I can I can do it now because I know how to switch it on. But initially, it, oh, it was horrible. I hated it. Really, really bad. Yeah. So you'd almost become your alter ego. You'd become someone else, and you can handle that. But if you're yourself, you'd you'd shy away. Yeah. Yeah. I'd I'd become Cal Halbert, the comedian sort of thing, and it's that sort of. There's also. I think it's something like, because I, I always wear a suit on stage. So whenever I put my suit on, there we are. I'm, I'm in work mode and it's a mindset yeah. sort of thing. I suppose it's very similar to getting ready for a, for a race. You, you're putting your, putting your spikes on and stuff and you go, right, okay, I'm in this mindset now. Or, or it, it's kind of like that. Yeah, difference is I'm taking, I'm taking layers off. I'm, I'm going into little <laughs> shorts and vests. But no, I know what you mean. It's, it's your... It's your, it's your Superman outfit, isn't it, or whatever although, it is. It's, although it's, I've it's, never it's your comfort blanket. That's true. I've never had a chance to shove Michael McIntyre down a set of stairs, though, Ewan. But... <laughs> no, don't, don't, don't shove him. I like him. Don't shove him. What's next for you, my friend? Uh, at the moment, DIY. I've literally <laughs> become the DIY king. I've got, I've got a, um, I'm looking outside, it's raining, but I've got a, um, a, a fence that I need to paint, which is very rock and roll. But no, I... I in these lockdowns, I've, I've found it hard. I, I honestly have. Like a lot of people, I've struggled. You know, I think the first lockdown was okay. The weather was good. I'd run every day. I'd be out there. And I think this time around, it's just doom and gloom, isn't it? The yeah. weather's not great. I think people's mental health is really being affected. Me personally, not being able to go to the gym is a massive, massive bad thing for me because it's it was my go-to place. So yeah. I'm trying to keep myself busy. I am trying to, you know, do things around the house or spend time with Teddy. I'm trying to find a positive from a negative. So all of this thinking, oh, I'm not working much. It's dead quiet. Where are we going with the world? I try not to look at it like that. I look at it like, do you know what? This is a great time. I can never get this time back with Teddy. If I was running around like a blue-ass fly, I wouldn't be seeing him every day. Yeah. And at the moment, I'm spending lots of time with him. So I'm trying to find something good from something bad, if that makes sense. So yeah, yeah. in terms of what's next for me, I'll wait until the phone rings, a job will come in, something I probably wouldn't have taken off. Yeah, I'll do it on board. But um, no, it, w- it will be DIY and, and daddy daycare. That's what I'll be doing. Sounds good. Sounds good. Sounds all right, doesn't yeah. it? How about you? What are you up to? What, uh, what, what's next for you? Doing this podcast. That's it. Yeah, That's, yeah. This is me. Uh, this is me go to now. Yeah. What I'm you're living doing. in that. You're living in that room, are you? I am. Yeah, yeah. The the, <laughs> the padded cell that I have. This is <laughs> yeah. this is my room now. Yeah. So yeah, nothing uh, nothing else to do in the comedy world really. It's just uh, so I've decided to. I've always wanted to do a podcast. So I've decided to start it. Went, right, no time like the ple- present, and let's just do it. Why not? And by the way, I've got to say a massive thank you to you on here because when it was Teddy's first birthday, I asked you, I said, oh, could you do some impressions? And you sent me a message and it was the most amazing message where you went into all these different characters saying happy birthday to Teddy and I played it out in front of everyone. Obviously, the kids did when we were too young, but all the adults were like, oh my God, how on earth did you get, how did you get Donald Trump to leave a message? Well, you know how it is. <laughs> you know, so, like, thank you for doing that. You're, oh, you're, you're such a, pleasure. you're such a, 
you're a wonderful man, mate. And you know, and I'm, I miss seeing you at the radio stations at the weekend. And you know, I'm, I'm hoping when this is all over, our, our paths will cross in the real world again, rather than over a Zoom call. So it'd be nice to see you. I hope so, mate. I really hope so. I've got one final question for you. Who would you like to see on this podcast? Oh, oh, that's a good one. Who have you? I'm trying to see who, you, who you've had. Who would I like to see? What would it be like if you interviewed other comedians and stuff? Is that is that a no no? Or is that a good one? For no, you, no, or? we can do we can do. I've interviewed Carl Hutchinson, who's also hosted the the one show he's been on. I've had Lauren yeah. Patterson, who's done some BBC shows as well. She she's been on the show. I'd like someone really miserable, like you know, like a sort of Jack D, <laughs> or or a John Richardson. You know, one of those those comedians who seem really grumpy. I'd like to see you get the best out of them. You know, I, you know, I don't know actually. I, I, I'd like to listen because I. I know you'll get the best out of anyone. So I'm trying to think who I personally would like to hear on here. Who would you like to then? Here's one for you quickly. And I'll twist it to you then. Dead or is it dead or alive? Who would you have loved to have had on your pod? Ooh, do you know, it would be a toss up between Robin Williams. Oh, yeah. Um, Elvis Presley or uh, this is still possible. I could get Billy Connolly. They're, they're the three that. Wow. I would, I would love to have Robin Williams on, though, I think. Wow. You know, I, I was speaking about him the other day. I was talking about mental health, and there's an example of someone who spent his life trying to make others happy and bring in pleasure to our lives, and obviously had, he had his own demons, and you'd, you'd never know it. And I just think that that's a massive, pure, sad example of someone great who's gone far too early. So always reach out, you know? Whoever's listening to this now, there might be a friend of yours who you think's all right, there was no harm in picking up that phone and phoning up saying, hey, Dave, Phil, Sharon, whatever, how's, how's your day going? Just want to say hello. Because someone did it to me the other day out in the blue. And I thought, I've not spoken to them for ages. And they were like, just wanted to check in. How are you? And I put the phone down. And I was so grateful for that because it's that little interaction. You don't know what that person is going through. And that might be the only person they chat to all day. So I think what I would say to anyone listening to this, if you're struggling, the chances are, someone you know is as well. So reach out. And also, there was no shame in saying, I'm having a tough time. I just wanted a phone for a chat. So uh, yeah, much love to be on here. And um, yeah, just uh, that's what I'd say. I'm not embarrassed to say I've had a bit of a tough time recently. I've had a bit of a wobble. And I, and I said about it and a number of people reached out and it was really nice. So uh, yeah, phone someone today. You do it as well. You don't, you don't have to phone me because we've already talked. Yeah, well, I was, um, I was about to say, yeah. I'm always at the end of a phone, mate. You can always give me a bell. I, I don't mind. I know. <laughs> I know you are. You're a, you're a good lad. I know you are. You and Thomas, MBE. Hey, see, don't worry. Hey, Top and tail it. Thank you. thank you for coming on to the Cal Halbert podcast. My pleasure. My pleasure. The Cal Halbert podcast. And there we go, my friends. That was my chat with Ewan Thomas, MBE. Yeah, see, that's one, two, three, four times I've said that today. Hey, it's all right, isn't it? Doing all right, me. If you enjoyed this podcast, please, please, please give it a nice big share with all your friends. Uh, and if you can, give us five stars. That really helps other people to find the podcast. If you're new to our podcast, don't forget there's loads and loads and loads of episodes beforehand. Uh, and I, and if you have heard all of those, maybe you can listen to them again if you want to. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to force you, but you can. Um, but if not, I'll see you next week with another spectacular guest. <laughs> The Cal Halbert Podcast. You've been listening to a Calbert Media production.